Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Since we've been talking about the difference between individual and social cognition, I'd like to conclude this series on Buddhism as self-help by pointing out some interesting implications for the psychology of Buddhist ethics. For a long time, I was puzzled about a particular question in this regard that in my mind is more or less resolved on the basis of the distinction between individual and social cognition, which I've been roughly attributing in these talks respectively to the ape mind and the human mind. The Buddha-to-be investigated mental factors or thoughts in terms of their ethical properties. This is quite characteristic of the Buddha's approach to ethics as something mental, not merely behavioral. Bhikkhus, before my awakening, while I was still only an unawakened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, Suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of kindness, and thoughts of non-harming. The Buddha called the first class of thoughts unwholesome or unskillful, akusala and the second class, wholesome or skillful, kusala. He is classifying mental factors, but it's clear that these categories have an ethical basis. The Buddha also noted the criteria for this twofold dichotomy of unwholesome and wholesome in psychological terms. There are these three roots of what is unskillful. Which three? Greed, as a root of what is unskillful, hatred as a root of what is unskillful, delusion as a root of what is unskillful. These are the three roots of what is unskillful. A lot of thoughts, anger, lust, jealousy, fear, irritation, dullness, bias, stinginess, and so on, are classified under one or more of the three headings, greed, hatred, and delusion, and are therefore unskillful or unwholesome. The roots of the skillful or wholesome are the opposites of the unskillful, non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, also known as renunciation, kindness, and wisdom. The Buddha thereby laid out a framework for discussion of ethics not in terms of consequences of our actions or in terms of rules of conduct, but in psychological terms. In fact, he discovered that several perhaps unexpected but observable differences emerge in the psychology of the skillful and that of the unskillful. The Buddha observed about the unskillful 
Greed, hatred, and delusion, friend, make one blind, unseeing, and ignorant. They destroy wisdom, are bound up with distress, and do not lead to nibbana. The skillful are the opposite. The Buddha also said about unwholesome or unskillful thought that it leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from nibbana. Notice that with respect to both personal suffering and retarded spiritual development, this leads support to the familiar saying, virtue is its own reward. This also gets us close to understanding in psychological terms why karma has fruits, why we are the heir of our own deeds. As long as we act with unskillful intentions, we suffer immediately in the future and remain stuck in samsara, the soap opera of life. We can break down psychologically the sacrifice of our future well-being in terms of our present discomfort with unskillful thoughts. We are creatures of habit. When we repeatedly engage in unskillful thought, we develop habit patterns in which we remain locked in the future and to which we are heir, ensuring greater suffering in the future as well. For instance, as we experience the pain of being angry now, which accumulates and makes us perpetually angry in the future. When we look at the wholesome side of the ledger, present wholesome thoughts build up habit patterns for future wholesome thoughts to which we are heir. But also the positive experience associated with the wholesome tends to be at a whole different level. We experience the relief of tolerance now, which accumulates and makes us perpetually tolerant in the future. The Buddha speaks of the great supramundane, lokuttara, joy and delight that comes from continuous virtue and how virtue trends towards the serenity that forms the basis of our meditation practice. This joy and delight is greater than mere sensual pleasures, the Buddha tells us. Now, probably most people most of the time are motivated by greed, hate, and delusion, by the various unwholesome factors that fall under these categories. Self-interest, which falls under greed, is the basis of our economy, and many would say of rationality itself. But according to what the Buddha is saying, we seem to have a psychologically built-in ethical sense, like an inner guiding light, one that brings us discomfort or pain when we violate ethical norms, not only affecting our present, but also our future well-being, and by the same token brings us joy when we adhere to them in our thinking. This is what I found puzzling. Where does this inner ethical sense come from that, when indulged, brings us so much joy and delight 
And why, in spite of this, do most of our impulses take us the other way? As a monk and longtime practitioner, I always ask about the Buddha's teachings. Do they make sense in terms of practice? One can verify for oneself that ethical thinking and action really does feel good and propels one's progress in the path. As a former cognitive scientist, I always ask, how do the Buddha's teachings make sense in terms of human cognition? This is where the puzzle arose. The levels of pleasure and pain experienced by those caught in mundane self-interest and the pursuit of sensual pleasures, hedonic thought and behavior, and therefore soap-operatic existence, as described in the early texts, is largely verified and explained in terms of modern psychology. This is basically the theme of Robert Wright's book, Why Buddhism is True. From the evidence of modern psychology, it is clear that a life centered around the pursuit of hedonic pleasure will be unsatisfactory. In Buddhist terms, people seek happiness both through immediate sensual pleasures and through any progress in enhancing their scope of ownership and control likely to secure ongoing sensual pleasures, acquiring new social connections, making a good impression and the like, or in making progress in attainment of sensual pleasure. This is driven by hunger for these things and appeased by their attainment, which brings pleasure. Studies of the psychology of pain and pleasure in people engaged in this way has produced some fascinating results. In earlier talks, we noted that certain orientations in life do not produce the level of general well-being that might be expected. Materialistic people are quite miserable on average, according to a variety of metrics, in spite of outward appearances. But now I want to look closer at the cycles of pain and pleasure one might experience in the course of a day, which is the kind of thing we can observe in Buddhist practice in contemplation and introspection, and I want to look at the mechanisms at work in all this. A good book I read relatively recently on this is Dopamine Nation by Anna Lemke. First of all, pleasure and pain are hard to pin down because they depend a lot on interpretation and value judgments. The Buddha once said, What, what others, others call happiness, happiness the, the noble, noble ones, ones call suffering. suffering. But we can observe the contributing biological factors at a low level that seem roughly to track what we normally identify as pleasure or pain. For instance, the level of the neurotransmitter dopamine goes higher when we experience pleasure and goes into deficit with pain. Activities in the reward pathways of the brain are also observed. What is observed is a kind of opponent process system, one that tries to maintain a balance between pleasure and pain that can tip toward pain or toward pleasure, but then seeks afterwards to tip in the opposite direction. We can already begin to see how this will frustrate a life devoted to seeking pleasure. 
A typical pattern is that we anticipate something pleasurable. Oh boy, chocolate mousse. And the dopamine level rises. That's pleasure. But then the dopamine level drops. And that triggers seeking behavior. Now, do I have enough money to buy one? Now, if we fail to obtain the desired object, the dopamine level goes way down. Oh, tis better not to have seen moose at all than to have seen and lost moose. However, if we succeed in obtaining the desired object, we enjoy pleasure. Mmm, this is so good. But it doesn't stop there. There is pressure to rebalance the opponent process in the direction of pain. If we decide that henceforth we will seek the same object every day, the degree of pleasure will decrease progressively each time. Likewise, pain medications lose their effectiveness over time, and high degrees of hedonism can lead to anhedonia, the inability to enjoy any pleasure of any kind. This rebalancing is described in terms of a hedonic set point. The idea is that our hedonic set point tends to move toward pain when we experience pleasure, such that we become less able to experience pleasure, but more sensitive to pain. Repeated pain moves the set point towards pleasure. It's easy to guess how we respond to this. We seek pleasure twice as hard, just to experience the pleasure at a level we used to. Give me a double helping today. Then three times as hard and so on. This is why the Buddha said, Not Not even even with with a shower of gold gold coins would would we find satisfaction in sensual craving. We will be endlessly unsatisfied. This is the story of most of our lives. That the pain works this way makes sense also from the perspective of evolution. Evolution is not interested in making people happy. Our emotions are evolutionary adaptations that trigger behaviors that make us more fit in terms of natural selection. Rather, they make us more fit in our ancestral environment, that is, in Stone Age hunter-gatherer society. The logic of the adaptation escapes us in any case, but the adaptation is still with us, and it's driven by emotion. The cycle of hunger, seek, consume, driven by rise and fall in dopamine levels, with their associated cycle of pain and pleasure, is what used to keep us healthy. Dopamine deficit triggers the seeking stage. It seems we cannot win in our aspiration to live happy and content in this life. We are caught up in a carrot and stick situation, a lifelong series of broken promises. We are designed to be perpetually dissatisfied because once we are satisfied, our impulses and urges to seek happiness stop, which means our behaviors toward fitness stop. 
Does it have to be this way? Our hedonistic drives are found among the apes and therefore must have been largely inherited from our ape ancestors, then preserved to ensure individual fitness in our ancestral environment. But we otherwise evolve significantly in our ancestral environment. Let me recap what I talked about a few weeks ago in this regard. Where apes are concerned with self-advancement, humans are fundamentally cooperative, at least within their own tribe, culture, or in-group. The difference has been attributed to a major evolutionary development that seems to have occurred about 400,000 years ago. At that point, we observe a rapid growth in brain size among our ancestors over a short period, tripling its capacity over the other great apes and a large uptick in population as a result. This was accompanied by the emergence of large-scale cooperative hunting and other collaborative projects, specialized weapons, bringing prey back to home base. Survival of the fittest was increasingly based not on competition between individuals, but cooperation among individuals and competition between tribes. What occurred evolutionarily was the acquisition of a radically new framework for cognition, and it produced the modern human. The framework that required the larger brain size shows up in the capacity of humans, even large groups of humans, to hold not only goals, but a common ground of knowledge, values, conventions, norms, institutions, abstractions, attention, and especially language. Most of individual cognition is, at the same time, collaborative social thinking, perhaps two-thirds of our thinking given that our brains had to expand 200% in order to achieve this capacity. It has been said that human thinking is an individual improvisation enmeshed in a sociocultural matrix. These changes required behavioral adaptations and a new set of emotional triggers to induce new pro-social cooperative behaviors. Next week, we'll see how this new evolutionary process opened up a new dimension of pleasure and pain based not on hedonic behavior, but on more ethical criteria. <laughs> 